Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest, who will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be Dr. Tom Katina, a missionary, family physician, and general surgeon, believe it or not, serving the needs of over one million people in war-torn Sudan. This is going to be a wonderful interview, and so to make enough time to talk to Dr. Katina, I want to jump straight to the trivia question, Tom, if we can do that. Uh, We can. So the trivia question uh, deals with where Dr. Tom Katina practices. And actually, this interview was uh, done uh, in late September uh, at the annual meeting of the CMA uh, conference. Because this guy's not in the States very often. It It, was rare. I mean, we jumped on this opportunity. Rare sighting. He was there for one day. (laughs) (laughs) Like a ruby-throated hummingbird. No. So (laughs) he works at a place called Mother of Mercy Hospital. And this is an area where Sudan and South Sudan, a new country, come together. Now, worldwide, the average proportion of children who die before the age of five is one in 26 children may not have realized that, so about 4% of children worldwide die before the age of five. What proportion of children die before the age of five in both Sudan and in South Sudan? After the interview, which is wonderful, we'll be back with the answer here on Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is coming to you today, recording at the 2019 Nashville CMA Annual Conference with over 900 attendees. Today, while walking through the uh, registration area, I was introduced to somebody that many of you may have heard of through a a movie that came out in 2018 called The Heart of Nuba. And we're going to delve into that with missionary, physician, surgeon, Tom Katina, who's just back for another day, and then he'll return to Sudan. Tom, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. It's great to be here. So, Tom, you grew up in, in northern New York, and uh, at some point, you apparently became a mechanical engineer and decided that, yeah, numbers and structure wasn't all for you. Right. Yeah, you know, I was, uh, when I was finishing, finishing high school, uh, I finished high school in 1982, and the big job then was everybody's going into engineering. That's where all the jobs were, and I thought, yeah, uh, let me go. I actually graduated in 81 and went to an engineering <laughs> school, so I can Did relate. You? Yeah. I mean, the thing that, you know, I want to go, go to school. I was tired of school as, as a 12th grader. Oh, let me go to school <laughs> four years, and I'm out. I want to start working, you know. So I went into do engineering, and I, I liked it, and... But when I was in college, I did my undergrad at Brown University, and I, I, was, I thought, man, I'd, I'd like to be a missionary. You know, it's just this idea kind of came in my head to be a missionary, as I was saying before. And uh, those two things didn't really mix, you know, mechanical engineering and <laughs> missionary work. And, you know, maybe civil engineering, but not mechanical, you know. So I thought, oh, it's just not, not what I want to do. So I graduated. I was given a job. I got a job at GE with their nuclear sub-program. Oh, sure. Really oh, that's good right. Program. You were in the Navy? Yeah. I, so, that was, was it ROTC? Uh, no, that was afterwards. This is before I went to the Navy. Oh. This was just out of college, um, you know, civilian, you know, Joe Civilian. <laughs> I, I, my brother was career army. I won't tell you what he calls civilians. So I was done. <laughs> <laughs> and kind of doing my thing. I got this job with GE. I thought, it's just not, not what I want to do. So, you know, what happened was I went to my aunt's funeral. And I'm coming back from, from her funeral. And with my brother, Felix who is now a county court judge in my home area. And, and this idea just popped in my head. I said, Phil, I should go into medicine. He said, what are you talking about? You're, you're supposed to be an engineer. What are you, what are you crazy? You know, you got a job and all this. No, I, I, I don't want to do that. I want to go into medicine. He's like, all right. <laughs> you know, whatever you say. So I go home. I talked to my parents. And they were, they were pretty open to the idea. You know, they didn't say, God, we just spent all this money on school. You know, we do something else. So everybody was pretty receptive to it. I didn't get a lot of pushback from that, thank God. Because I was really kind of nervous about saying this. I'm like, God, do I really want to do this? And, but I just felt like this is what I should do. You know, this was much. This this could kind of align my love of the sciences, my desire to work with people, and it fit much more with being a missionary. You know, it could be a medical missionary. Yeah, okay, this and, all kind of lines up. With what and I what do. was the state of your Catholic faith at the time? It was it was pretty good. You know, what I say is I was uh, I'm a cradle Catholic and grew up in the in the church and uh, my parents were uh, pretty strong Catholics. My dad went to daily mass every day for a thousand years, <laughs> and uh, you know I was a normal Catholic kid growing up. Went to church every Sunday and holy days. Didn't give it a whole lot of second thought. I think like most uh, high school kids, went to public high school. 
went to college at Brown University, which is extremely secular. Yes. And when I was there, I, I kind of fell in with the evangelicals. There was a, a group called Campus Crusade for Christ. Yes. They were great. I mean, uh, my campus minister, a guy named Kent Dahlberg, was fantastic. I mean, great campus minister. And uh, had some friends in the group, and we did Bible study. And, uh, you know, most of my, um, I think my, my Christian reawakening was through these evangelicals. Um, and then I kind of came back. I, I never, I always went to Mass on Sunday, mm-hmm. you know? Yes. I always went to Mass. I did all the things as a, as a Roman Catholic. But kind of my, my out of church things was more with the evangelical Christians. And, uh, they had, you know, they really have a lot to offer. I think I, I kind of came back to the Catholic, more towards the Catholic faith after after my time in college, and um, so this was a kind of the time when I was uh, after college. So I was kind of still in that kind of mix in between those two, those two Christian worlds, and then after that point came much back uh, back into more Orthodox Catholicism uh, as I as I went on in life. Um, but faith was a, was was a very strong factor, obviously, in doing and wanting to do mission work. So then you did medical school, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you chose a family practice residency, and mm-hmm. that was in the Navy? Right. So what I did was I uh, went to medical school and got a Navy scholarship for medical school. And uh, did medical school at Duke and got autom- you know, finished medical school and then went into the Navy. Did my internship. I did internal medicine internship at Naval Hospital San Diego. And I thought I wanted to do ID. You know, that was my thinking. Oh, yeah, infectious you know, disease. I, I thought, well, if I want to do mission work, you should do infectious disease. And I didn't really know much about the mission field. Had you been in the mission field at this point? Was um, it all in your yes. head? Yes, I did one. Okay. I did one rotation in Kenya as a as a fourth year medical student. Oh, and kind of kind of had an idea. And there was a, a priest doctor who worked there, uh, who was internal medicine. And I thought, well, eh, let me do infectious disease. So I had a little bit of a taste of the mission field. That kind of piqued my interest, you know. Very good. And I'm, I was there doing my internal medicine internship, and I was like, man, it was great. You know, the ICU stuff I, was great. The ward stuff was good. It was interesting. I liked the internal medicine approach, really thorough and, yes. you know, he- fo- heavy focus on, on, on physical diagnosis. I'm thinking, man, this is a lot of elderly and a lot of strokes and things. I, I don't think this really fits that much with the mission field. Let me, let me, let me think. So I had time to think. I, I finished internship, and the way it works in the Navy is after internship, you go out to the fleet. So I said, well, I, I want to be a, a flight surgeon. So some friends of mine, we went and we, we joined the flight surgery course. And that was just, that was just fun. I mean, we went, sure. and we, we went to Pensacola, Pensacola, Florida. You're, you're an Army dog, right? I was. So, we, you know, Navy, I went to the Navy. It was great. I went to be a flight surgeon. We had six months in Pensacola. I learned how to fly and all this kind of stuff. And then went out with the fleet. Spent a year in Diego Garcia, a couple years in San oh, Diego. We deployed wow. all over the place. So I had a great time in the Navy. I would have stayed if this mission idea wasn't pulling at me. So during my time in the Navy, I'm like, well, gosh, what do I want to do? I want to do a mission work. I need to broaden my, the scope of my, um, uh, my field because internal medicine, I thought, was a bit too narrow yes. for the mission field. I thought, well, do I do family practice? Do I do general surgery? I was really torn between the two. So when, I was, when it came time, now my naval obligation was coming to an end. I spent five years in the Navy and yes. just as a, as a medical officer. It was about to finish. General medical officer. And I said, okay, let me finish my time, and I'll, I'll, I'll finish my Navy commitment, then I'll be free and go on to my training. So I ended up applying to both. I applied to a general surgery program oh. and family practice. I couldn't decide what to do. Wow. And I, I ranked, I mean, I kind of, I think I want to do family practice because I ranked the surgery program below the family practice programs. Which, I mean, there's no way I'm going to get that surgery program. I thought, let me leave up to the match to decide. I couldn't decide what to do. And I got the family practice program, of course, which was in Terre Haute, Indiana. And I went did my, my time there. And uh, Two or three years? It was two and a half. So I got six months credit for my okay. internal medicine internship. So I did two and a half years in Terre Haute. They had a pretty big OB uh, program, the six months of OB. And then Ooh, uh, they could, you could kind of learn how to do a C-section during your time as a resident. And they also had a, a, a fellowship in, in OB after, which I did not do. So I thought, let me, let me go and do that. It's focused on rural health. That's probably the closest I can do to, to doing um, uh, mission medicine. I, I was too late to, there's a program in uh, Ventura, California that's really focused on that, but I was too late to apply to the program there. Anyway, so I went to Terre Haute. It was really a good program, and uh, Indiana was, was great, uh, great people there. Yeah, I did a couple short-term missions with Catholic Medical Mission Board. Went to Honduras, I went to Guyana, and then it was time to finish. Uh, I hooked up again with CMMB, and uh, they sent me a booklet full of places looking for a, a family practice doc. So I picked out one program in Kenya that was a rural program. I wanted somewhere, I wanted somewhere rural that did not have a lot of other you know, docs there. So I picked a, a place in rural Kenya, 
and uh, went out there and spent two and a half years and then five years in Nairobi and then my time in Sudan. My goodness, that's incredible. So it, it was a very natural progression for you after you left the Navy to continue in that Yeah, way. very much. And you know, it's funny how, how the hand of God guides you along the way because I went, I studied family practice. So I got to, I went to Kenya uh, I was doing all kinds of stuff. I mean, really steep learning curve. You know, I, I, I had great mentors. I had an Irish doctor that had been there for a couple of years. There was an Irish nun, Sister Marion Dolan, who had been there forever. <laughs> and she was like always cracking the whip. So, you know, I learned a ton from these guys. I never treated TB, malaria, all this stuff. So they really learned and a lot. And at what point did you learn general surgery? <laughs> so for that, you know, when I was there in Kenya, I, I realized that a lot of problems have a surgical base, at least in that environment. Yes. Um, and if you, you've got to learn some surgery, maybe not open heart surgery, but something. So I started with doing DNCs and then for, for miscarriages, obviously, not for right. abortions. Right. So learn how to do DNCs and then how to drain abscesses and then how to do wound debridements, how to um, reduce fractures. So I was doing all this kind of minor surgery stuff. And then there were a couple of visiting surgeons came. I learned how to do prostatectomies. And then uh, <laughs> somebody else came and showed me how to do an amputation. And then I said, well, I really want to learn more surgery. So I ended up going to... Uh, the north of Kenya, in a place called Turkana, because there was a, 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 a priest doctor. He was a priest at that time, Kevin Flanagan. So I met Kevin, and he was kind of a swashbuckling kind of guy. He's like, yeah, come on up. We'll have a blast. So I go up to Turkana. <laughs> Turkana, Kenya is in the middle of nowhere. Beautiful place, but really desert. And with Turkana people desert. who are awesome, I mean, incredibly looking, colorful uh, tribe of people. Some of them were Kevin. And we were there about four or five days. And again, I, 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 at that point, I was not doing much surgery. I could do a C-section, an ectopic pregnancy, a prostatectomy, and that was about it. So there were a few days, and this was a mission hospital in a very isolated region, doing all the surgery for a huge refugee camp nearby. And after a few days, Kevin's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to Nairobi. I need to take a break. You know, I want to get out of here. So I'm like, well, Kevin, I can't really do surgery. He's like, no, nah, you'll be fine. I mean, don't worry about it. <laughs> so <laughs> so well, I, we, we go to the airstrip, and I'm like in a panic, you know? <laughs> so Kevin, I remember, forget, he gets on the airplane, and the door of the airplane is open. I said, Kevin, what happens if somebody comes in with a bowel obstruction and I have to do like a, I have to like resect bowel? He's like, no problem, man. It's like putting two tubes together. No problem. <laughs> <laughs> like, the door closes and he takes off, you know, in the airplane. I'm like, so what funny. do I do if, you know, so it was, it was terrible. He was, he said, I'll be back in a few days. He was gone for like three weeks. <gasps> oh, oh no. my God. We had problems coming. I'm trying to deal with this stuff. I mean, I, we, we survived and most of the patients survived, but it was, it was harrowing. It's funny because when I was there, sort of the hand of providence. So a young surgeon, surgeon slash family practice doctor comes to fill in for Kevin when he goes. So he goes, then he comes back. Then he has to go again to take his surgery board. So when he goes, a person double, double boarded in family practice and general surgery shows up to take Kevin's place. This is Dee Byrne. Oh, sis- sister. Who's now oh. Sister Dee Byrne. Colonel, Colonel doctor. Sister, Dr. Dee Byrne. And religious superior. Right. Dee Dee So Dee yes. she was just Dee at the time. Dr. Dee <laughs> comes. She goes, hey, um, you know, I know this bishop. And I was talking to her, I said, look, you know, I really, I'm here in Kenya, and I kept hearing about Sudan, and it just it just fascinated me. There was, at the time, the civil wars going on, the yes. fight between the North and the South, and it was kind of this mix of religious conflict and ethnic conflict. I thought, this is a place I want to go, you know, kind of get a piece of section. Yeah, doesn't everybody want to go to a <laughs> yeah, place yeah. like that? People that are, are not exactly, must people, have been the call. We were all lined up to go there. <laughs> I think God works in our craziness, you know, yes, kind of knows us better than we know ourselves. So Dee's like, hey, I know this bishop who's building a hospital there, who's Bishop Beckham uh, Gassis, who was the Bishop of El Abed Diocese, living in exile in Kenya, in Nairobi. Wow. And at the time, I was just in, in Turkana, uh, short term, just to work with Kevin, uh, learning how to do surgery. So Didi's showing me some surgery, so I learned how to do hernias and uh, hysterectomies from Didi. Ah. Then I go to Kenya. My whole reason for going to Kenya was to learn surgery. Yes. So I picked up some some stuff when I was in rural Kenya. Then Sister Didi taught me a few things. Kevin taught me a few things. I go to Nairobi, and Nairobi is a, a Kenyan doc, another um, evangelical Christian doc, Mike Johnson. Uh, so Mike, like the same day I go to this hospital in Nairobi, a big mission hospital, it's, it's Mike Johnson's first day. So Mike had been up in northern Kenya for several years. He was a real surgeon, a board-certified general surgeon. So Mike and I end up on the same, we, we end up every Monday, we're in the operating room. And Mike just took it on himself to teach me how to do everything. <laughs> wow. Thyroids, mastectomies, you know, internal fixation of bones, you know, VP shunts, you name it. Wow. And it was great. And huge volume. I mean, we would do 20, 25 cases every day. It was, it was just every tremendous volume. Day. Did you have I, electricity? <laughs> we did. So this is in Nairobi. 
pretty well equipped. Power, running water, it's on the, it's on the grid, they had a backup generator. So that was pretty good, pretty, pretty good conditions. Uh, but Mike was there and Dr. Rucci was a Kenyan doc, was like a magician uh, guy. And he would, you know, I would, do, I would start a case and, and I'd just say, Rucci, I would, I'd call him and he'd kind of come look at the case and say, oh, i just do this and this. And I would do this and this and it would work out. You know, it was incredible. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I had great mentors. So I learned kind of on the job, but with yes. people with me. I mean, I had great mentors and people with me along the way from Sister Marion to Dr. Didi to Dr. Kevin to Rucha to Mike Johnson. All these people were there on the way to show me how to do this stuff. And it was all very, I think very much the hand of God guiding all this stuff because you know, when you end up in a place like Sudan's New Mountains, you've got to be able to hit to do whatever hits the doorway. There is no referral. You can't refer somebody out. So you've got to be able to do a VP shunt, and then the next case is a hysterectomy. And, and a VP shunt is shunting fluid from uh, a, a cavity in the brain called the ventricle into the peritoneum. That's the P, which is the cavity where your intestines are. It would be a hard <laughs> procedure to pick up just kind of on the job like that. I can't even believe it's a lot, it. I tell you, I, I tell you, and I, I, I hope people get the idea I'm boasting about this. It's, it's, it's what I think what people are capable of doing if you just put your mind to it and you have mentors willing to teach you something. Yes. And, you know, you, you, I read a ton when I was there. But VP shunts are not that difficult. The post-op care is a bit hard. The anesthesia is difficult. The procedure itself is not that hard. I believe it. It's really not that hard. And uh, it's doable. And, we, and like in the mountains, we have tons of kids with hydrocephalus. Okay. So we do them all the time. Well, that's a good place for a break. We'll be right back with more here on Dr. Doctor. And here we are back with Dr. Tom Katina. So this would be a good time if listeners are not driving. Okay, if you are driving, ignore this part. If you're not driving, pull up a map of Africa and then pull up the Sudan and South Sudan, which are actually different countries now. They haven't been for a long time, but they are different countries. So Tom is located in the Nuba Mountains, which is in South Central Sudan in South Kordofan, Kordofan State. Kordofan, yep. State. What year did Sudan have the the referendum? Was it 2011? 2011 was a referendum. So the peace agreement was signed in 2005. Yes. 2006, 2005. There was relative peace, 2005, 2011. Referendum was in 2011. So the South Sudanese voted like 99.9999% to separate from their Arab Yeah, that's incredible. It, it sounds like a dictatorship kind of election, and it wasn't. Yeah, yeah. It was really, they all they all say, we're, we're out of here, so they and, separated from, the, from the North. And it's because the North was mostly Islamic. They wanted Sharia law, and they spoke Arabic. Right. So Arabic is was was also the language in, in South Sudan. A lot of South Sudan also speak Arabic. They speak their own version called Juba Arabic. Mm. But Sudan was an Islamic republic. It's, it's still an Islamic republic. Sharia law was the law of the land. And it was up till April. Now it's in a bit of a flux because Omar Bashir was deposed in, in more or less a coup. There's a transition, transitional government in place now made up half civilian, half... Um, but South half Sudan military. is mostly Christian, isn't it? South Sudan is almost all Christian, right? So, and all African. So, wow. and apparently South Kordofan, where uh, the Nuba Mountains are, where you right. live, is animist and Christian, but not Islamic. Right there. Well, in our in our in the mountains, the the people are everybody's an animist or they, they ancestor worship, whether you're Christian or Muslim. And probably half are Christian, half are Muslim. It's pretty well broken down. But it's a, it's a pretty mixed. But somehow group. that area wasn't allowed to vote. Right. So South Kordofan was not allowed to take part in the referendum. So they had they were supposed to do a separate process called a popular consultation, which I think was purposely vague. And the public consultation, I, I read through the proposal and it was very, I, I couldn't understand it. Yeah, it was kind of like, well, we'll form his committees to go around to the villages and talk to people in the villages and kind of get their opinions. They'll consult the people and say, <laughs> wow. what do you guys want to do? You want your own government, blah, blah, blah. No possibility of corruption in that system. No, it was, it was, it was really vague. And then it had, it was supposed to be elections taking place before then. The elections were, well, I, I tell you before the election, the two people that squared off were a guy named Abdulaziz, who's the leader of the Esplay North Rebels, the Nuba Rebels. And again, his opponent in the National Congress Party, the party of Omar Bashir, is a guy named Ahmed Haroun. So Ahmed Haroun was, was and is wanted by the ICC for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And before the election, Bashir's man was Ahmed Haroun. He, he wanted Ahmed Haroun to win the governorship, obviously. So he said, Ahmed Haroun is our candidate. He will, he will win either by the ballot or by the bullet. Oh my <laughs> he, said so, this he said this publicly. Why not? He's a wow. dictator. He's got complete authority. 
So I mean, you can imagine the environment going in. So of course, I'm at her wins the election. And people are upset and they're saying, oh, we're never going to have freedom, blah, 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 this is a disaster. So then, just after then, the Sudan army comes down. They say, look, you know, you guys are, you know, you're, our guys in, in power, Esplanade North, you guys don't have, or Esplanade doesn't have, doesn't have any presence here anymore. So they tried to forcibly disarm the SPLA, the Sudan People's Liberation Army soldiers. The fighting breaks out in the barracks, and then there's a civil war it erupts in June uh, 2011. Wow. And that's where, to this day, we're still kind of in that state. No fighting now. There's a ceasefire, but we're... So how, on, on a daily basis, this doesn't sound like a safe place to live. Do you run into violence th- throughout all this time? You know, it's interesting. Certainly during the, when the fighting was on, from 2011 till, you know, fairly recently when the fighting was stopped from ceasefire, the risk was from the, the civil war. The people themselves are not that violent. Like, you don't really have, you know, there's some petty theft and that kind of thing, but... Physical uh, violence is is extremely rare. I mean, you would, I would never fear walking around there at night. And our area is firmly ensconced in rebel-held territory. So, I mean, we had points when the rebel, when the Sudan army encroached fairly close to our area, and we were always under the threat of aerial bombardment. So the main risk was every day, the daily risk was aerial bombardment. And you have been bombarded. You've actually taken videos of bombs, yeah. what, landing 100 yards or 100 feet away? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, they landed, you know, at the hospital compounds, we were bombed. We were bombed twice. So somebody would actually bomb a hospital. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, for the for the Sudan Air Force, this is one of their mo's. During this previous civil war, they bombed hospitals left and right. Wow. They bombed us a couple times. And they you're the only the hospital school. for what kind of? I mean, we're area. There is another smaller hospital that's maybe an hour and a half away. But as far as referral hospitals that can do surgery and you know higher level care, we're it for. So, so what's your drawing? You're, you're drawing numbers of people. <laughs> I mean, our catchment area is probably a million and a half, million, million, million and a half. And there's how many of you? There's, let's see, there's one Tom, Tom Katina across the table from me. Yeah, I mean, for the, first, for the first eight years, I was the only doc. And then I was joined by a pediatrician wow. a few years ago. So Clark McIntosh so, is a pediatrician. To, to, to set this picture, we are at a conference <laughs> for physicians, and the theme is burnout. Yeah. Now, nobody, nobody can claim any worse burnout than you could possibly have been under yeah. 24-7 for eight years, the only doctor, a million and a half people. I mean, that's just... Mind-boggling. Well, I tell you, I tell you, Tom. It was fat. The, the talks this morning were fascinating. Far Curlin's talk and the other guys. I really, I was very interested in the talks. And a couple things I took away from it. One was it seems the main source is this lack of connection with what their perception of being a physician was for medical school and the training and what the reality is. Yes. I think a lot of that comes from people don't they don't feel fulfilled in their practice. Like, man, I was I would learn all this stuff and I want to I want to be a doc. I want to take care of sick people. I want to do a lot of stuff. And they're hit with paperwork and stuff that they really despise. And it's like, man, I wasn't trained. You know, this is not what I was supposed to do. Right. So is that disconnect? Yes. There's that. And I, I read something. I don't know if it came up today in today's talks. But I read something some months ago. It was just kind of one, I think, one small study. And they found that that the, the burnout was much less in people that had a very, uh, a very varied practice. So that, you know, if you're, say, if I'm a doc in a rural place, you're doing some OB, you're doing some minor surgery, you're doing some other stuff, maybe some endoscopies, you know, you're kind of, you have a bit of a mix of your practice. You're not just kind of doing outpatient. You, you really have a bit of a mix of your practice. So in those two scores, I mean, in terms of, you know, you know personal fulfillment and kind of direct patient care, I mean, we're, you know, you can't You've get much it. better than that. Yeah, and I bet you don't have an electronic <laughs> medical record. We don't. And we will never have one. <laughs> well, that's kind of it right there. It doesn't have to submit to insurance companies. If but it comes, man, I'm out of there. That's, that's you know, we're, we're not, yeah, we have, I mean, our paperwork is, is about zero. So what you do is totally focused on patient care. Of course, we have a lot of other things like, you know, um, logistics and other stuff I have to do as the, as the doc there administrative wise. But it's not, it's all stuff you have to do to make the hospital run. It's not like... I don't it makes frivolous. sense why you have right, to do Everything it. makes sense you have to do. Yeah. You document, you write down what you need to know the next day in rounds when you see this patient. Yes. Discharge summary is, okay, let me write down what we did so I know when I see the guy back in two weeks what we did was in the hospital. That's it. You, always, you don't spend any more time on that. Man. And for variety of practice, you know, it's, it's got a pretty big variety of things you're seeing every day from patient to patient. There's a pretty big how, variety. How many hours on an average day now <laughs> are you seeing patients doing surgery, that type of thing? I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty full. I mean, uh, 
you start out, we have, you know, we're, we're incredibly blessed. We have a priest that we've had, the whole, my whole time there, we've had priests covered except for a handful of months. Wow. So even during the fighting, when NGO, when a couple NGOs left, when our expatriates took off, the priest stuck it out. Native priest or? There, um, the guy now is a South Sudanese. We had a couple oh. guys, uh, a Ugandan priest, a Tanzanian priest. Um, at one point, the, the, we, we were told, this is a couple years ago, um, we got this notice from the, the rebel government saying, you know, all the, we, we, were, we were suggesting that all the expatriates leave because we think the Sudan army is going to overrun your position <laughs> oh <my laughs> during Lord. the night. So I remember, I never forget this night because we had, um, we had a going away party for one of the Camboni sisters. Camboni order is not so well known in the U.S., but Daniel Camboni is a yes. saint. Every Sudanese in the world knows Daniel Camboni. <laughs> He's a tremendous figure. So uh, the Camboni sisters were there. And Sister Mary Carmen is a Mexican Camboni. And she established a radio station in the middle of nowhere. So Sister Mary Carmen had been there for like 10 years. So she was going to go. It was Saturday night. She was going to leave Sunday. So Saturday night, we said, okay, we're having a going away party for Sister Mary Carmen. So we go to the sisters' compound. I just get there, and Father Francis, who was a Ugandan diocesan priest, uh, was there and loaned to the diocese, shows me a letter saying, you know, we need all the expatriates out because the Sudan army is going to, we got good information, they're going to attack your, your position. So we have a big discussion that night. So uh, we all decide what to do. So myself and the sisters say, ah, we're not going, we're staying. Sister Mary Carmen was supposed to leave the next day. She goes, you know what? I'm going to stay. <laughs> <laughs> Where was she from? She's from Mexico. She's Mexican. So she sticks it out. The sisters stay. So the t- we have some Kenyan teachers there and some, some of our staff were in Kenya and Uganda. So they, they left. The rest of us stayed. One of the priests left. But Father Deo Gracias stayed. He's like, I'm not leaving. Father, thanks be to yeah, God. Yeah, thanks be to God. Wow. Deo Gracias Minja, he stayed. He's Tanzanian. That's awesome. So we've always had priest coverage there. So I, I, that's a bit of an aside. But I think kind of, I always want to put in a plug because so much negativity towards the church yes. worldwide. Nobody knows these things. Yes. These oh, are priests yeah. that get, I mean, I mean, priests in the U.S. berated. My brother's yes. a priest. Sisters, like, oh, what are people doing? You're wasting people's time. It's like, you have no idea no. what priests and sisters do wow. in the world. And I'm not, you know, these are incredible people. And uh, their stories never get told. So let me use this time to, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm preaching the choir, as they say, talking to WTN, but also people in your audience need to know yes, <laughs> that there do. are people out there that are doing incredible things, religious that are doing these things. So anyway, we have the good fortune of having a priest with us. So we have a mass every morning at 630, which is tremendous. And uh, we are really in the middle of nowhere with the luxury of having a priest, which is fantastic. How many people are usually at mass? Very small number. The daily mass is a small number. So we are maybe five or six, How sometimes Sunday? 15. Sunday is a huge crowd. So this Thousand? is uh, maybe a few hundred, I would guess, okay. easily a few hundred. Four or five hundred, I would guess. And how many people live in the compound area? Or there's not a big. It's not a big population so, center. So yeah. Look, so big, give us the kind of the physical layout of this place, so we it's, can visualize it's, it. It's called Numa Mountains, but they're very low-level mountains, more like rolling hills. Uh, maybe like um, oh gosh, what uh, kind of rolling hills? They're one one thousand feet uh, elevation. Sure. The highest would be two or three thousand feet. Yeah. It's got a distinct, it's got two seasons, a rainy season, so it's either hot and wet or hot and dry. In the dry <laughs> how, season, how hot is it? I mean, it's got, it's got to be 110 easily. Wow. I mean, we were, the other day we were somewhere, I forget where it was, it was like in the 90s. And I was like, man, this is great weather, you know, it's on the sun. And <laughs> I was like, man, it's much hotter in Nuba, so it's, it's in the hundreds. How, how low does the temperature get? It, generally, generally gets, it gets quote unquote cold, so probably down in the 60s. And you feel like I'm wearing a sweater and a hat. Sure. I mean, probably probably around sixty, and it gets a bit windy. Because you're about five degrees north latitude right, of the equator, exactly. which is like three hundred miles or so, right? Mi- three fifty. <laughs> so, uh, we know the temperature. How how many months does it rain? How many months does it dry? Rainy season starts in May, uh, kind of mid to late May, and goes through say mid October. So a good five months. It's got a pretty long rainy season, and it just turns to mud. I mean, it's really so. And there's really <laughs> not much to speak of in terms of roads. No, I mean there are no there are no paved roads, and if people have worked uh, overseas, and there was about something called a Merrim road. So Merrim is kind of ground stuff and clay. There are no Merrim roads. It's just kind of track, and then rainy season is just mud. So it's <clears throat> pretty much impassable during so, the rainy season. And then the hosp- <coughs> how big is the hospital itself? We're four hundred thirty-five beds. And the name of the hospital? Mother of Mercy. 435 beds? Yeah. That's a huge Now, yeah. <laughs> now the structure is not so big because these so, beds are in the corridor. They're on verandas. They're in tents. They're kind of everywhere. Is there electricity? Uh, we have solar and a backup generator, which currently is not working. So we're really in dire straits right now. Wow. We have power. We have, um, it's all on solar. 
So we have the backup generator there, but the generator is not as broken. So we're we're trying to limp on the on the solar power, which is the batteries are going. Now, are you in a village or a city? Not really a village. It's more of a village. Or is it a compound or a village built around the hospital? Pretty much. I mean, there's kind of people are really scattered. It's not really there's no big population center. Okay. You know, our village is kind of a few like dukas, the local little stores that are kind of. Uh, straw hut kind of things that sell a few odds and ends I and mean, they're pretty it's pretty basic so as the only doctor you probably have one of the biggest houses plush i mean tell, tell, people, tell people what your mansion is like well I, li- I lived on the compound the hospital compound for several years so i had we lived in a, a block for a few years and it was just kind of a oh gosh it was a tiny little room i, I had uh, and then an outside of course outside latrine and shower then i moved to a bigger room and then I married a few years ago, and then my wife and I, we moved right behind the hospital. So we've got a, um, we got a decent house. The staff built for us. So it's brick. It's local brick. Oh. So uh, mud brick and then uh, burned, burned brick. Yeah. It's got a straw roof uh, with wood, kind of wood uh, beams and a um, wooden kind of, actually you have to cut trees down. It's environmentally, it's not very good, but <laughs> cut these small trees down, and you buy just a, a grass, and you, you grab, it's a grass roof. And then cement, uh, or what do you call it? Um, brick walls and it's just two small rooms and we have some guest houses which are all local materials so it's stone uh, which has gotten from a quarry just nearby so stone and mud mortar and then grass roof so when you guys come to visit you got a room for you so dirt floor and then so they're so, they're beautiful so, rooms so no plumbing awesome. no no <laughs> and no electricity <laughs> no and no fans wow. no air conditioning no do you have running water for surgery and stuff like we that? do so in the hospital we have a solar pump which pumps water up to a I think it's about a 5,000 liter, two 5,000 liter tanks. And then by gravity feed, it comes down and feeds the hospital through pipes. So we have running water in the hospital a couple places. Okay. You have a few water points. And then in the hospital, we have one sink. No, we have two sinks. One is where we scrub. The other one's where we have the sluice where they wash all the, all the dirty stuff. And ha- you haven't always <coughs> had electricity there, have you? Uh, no, we have. We have uh, in the hospital, we have. In the hospital, yeah. you have. So you've always solar. been able to operate with electricity. Yep. So how many hours a day are usually in surgery? Uh, we can start at, at 9 and go till 6, 7. So sometimes. how often are you in clinic? So clinic is, uh, my main clinic days are Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday. Saturday is just half day. And operating room days, full days are Wednesday, Friday. And then other days for operations are minor cases and emergencies. So what so, do you do Saturday afternoon, Sunday? Saturday afternoon, do administrative stuff. Um, Catch up on all the admin emails, uh, any kind of uh, you know, longer writing I have to do, uh, reading, try to get home a bit early that day. And then Sunday is is um, going to do a quick round in the morning, go to mass, and then pretty much have Sunday afternoon off, except for emergencies. Quick round on 435 patients. Right, yeah, just do, <laughs> yeah, nice, how, how nice do you putting do out that? fires. I mean, how many nurses do you have? Do you have PAs, nurse practitioners? Do you train assistants? We have we have clinic we have clinical officers which are like PAs, and they uh, now we have enough. So we have we have them we have interns that we have on the ward now. So they do rounds with me on the wards now. Before we'd have enough, we had like two of these clinical officers and myself. That was the whole staff. That was the clinical staff. So they'd be in clinic, seeing clinic patients. I'd be in the wards. I would go and join them in clinic. So you know, on the wards. And it was, it'd be a sprint. I mean, <laughs> yes. you would really have to hustle getting through those patients. Wow. I mean, at one point, I remember we had, uh, you know, children's ward. We had, uh, it was during malaria season. We had 100 kids on the ward. And that was not, that was not, a, we, and that, would be, that would be for months. And that wasn't, that, the ward would go up to 135 for the ward. At the time, we had a measles epidemic. And over course of like seven or eight, that was about eight, eight nine months. Over course of about eight, nine months, we had 1,400 measles cases at the hospital. So at one point, we had 100 kids on the regular wards. This is the malarias, pneumonias, hernias, fractures, you know, whatever. And then behind the hospital, we set up seven tents for measles cases. There were 125 kids behind the hospital. Oh so goodness. children's ward was 225 patients to get just to see the kids. Wow. And it was, it was in the measles patients, um, I mean, now they talk about the measles uh, problem here in the U.S. They are sick as all get out. I mean, measles kids are really, really sick. It oh, was my first exposure we, to measles. They're we've terribly had, sick. We've had shows here about, you know, is there a Catholic duty to vaccinate and how people don't realize the harm they're doing because they don't see measles like yeah, you are now. I'm telling you. Well, I'll tell you what happened, Tom. The reason we had the epidemic was uh, Civil War breaks out in 2011. 
We got our vaccines from, well, we got it from UNICEF. Civil war breaks out, we're in rebel held territory, we stop getting vaccines. Yes. So a lot of international, these huge UN type yes. organizations, I don't, want to, I don't want to badmouth somebody, but this is, they have their own mandates and things. And I mean, they, they eventually came around and are, are helping us. But they, they're very afraid to violate the sovereignty of, a, of the host nation yes. because they've got, you know, they're afraid of other things. Sure. Anyway, be, be, be what it is. They, we didn't get vaccine for three years. So now you fast forward to 2014, these kids go three years without vaccine. You'll see what happens. So what are the vaccinate. worst things you wow. see from measles in the kids? So they would get, uh, well, cough, chorizo, conjunctivitis, the big three, right? Right. Who cares about the, the chorizo? I mean, you know, we don't care that about that. That means a cold right. for the listeners. And, you know, conjunctivitis, we don't care about the red eye. But they would get terrible pneumonias. They would get measles pneumonias and terrible vomiting diarrhea. So they'd often die from the diarrhea. Then they would get malnourished and die from that. So we had 30 children die oh, during this time. Of measles. And they were, uh, you know, I, I, I remember one morning, I'll never forget this morning. You know, I, I just wanted to get, you know, just, just exhausted. I just want to get through the rounds and get to mass, you know. And mass starts at 9.30. It's like 10 o'clock, right? I'm just trying to get through rounds. So I'm just on children's ward, you know. I'm still, and as I go to one of the tents, I walk in, and this mother is on the ground wailing. And the way they deal with grief there, the, the Nuba people are, are extremely tough and stoic. But if a child dies, a young person dies, they wail. I know some cultures have this. They will just throw themselves on the ground. They wail and scream. And it's this blood-curdling oh. scream. I, I have to, I, it's, it's, ugh, I just, I hate it. So it's, this woman is just wailing. I'm like, oh, what the heck happened? I go in there and the child just died from measles. And I was just, I was so upset that day. I just wrote this, at that time I wrote this thing against the organization that was not sending vaccines. Anyway, I, I never sent it out because the, the diocese said, no, this is too angry, you know. But I was really furious. Sure. I was so furious about this whole thing. And it was just, it was really a low point. Uh, but all the deaths we had, you know, how many kids were killed from ill bombardment, this was almost worse. Yes. It's like, this is something like a willful, you know, this was a, a, a genocidal dictator killing these children, okay? Yes. But this is something Slowly. from people that are trying to, that, are, that have the mandate to do this kind of work. And the ball was dropped. In some ways, I, I felt I wasn't being forceful enough. I hadn't said enough to kind of force the issue. So some of it was I, I felt some sort of guilt uh, from this, you know, and it was, it was a real low point. That Sunday morning was a real low point. And because I'm telling people that are in the anti-vax crowd, I understand your, your feelings, but I'm telling you, you, you think vaccines are harmful. You see what happens if you don't vaccinate. Yes. Measles is a terrible disease. You know, we think, ah, oh, you know, whatever, measles, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's, really, it's really harsh. Jeez. It's really harsh. And then that's 30 died at our hospital. We had 1,400 admissions. Who knows? I mean, I mean, one kid. Didn't make it to the hospital. Didn't make it. There was my favorite kid, Kukur Azarok. So Kukur Azarok was <laughs> Kukur the cutest Azarok. little kid. I loved this little kid. So I, his mom would come. They were from the town uh, place nearby. So I kept asking, oh, how's Kuka who coming? Oh, he's doing great. He had a VP shunt. So he had a hydrocephalus as a baby. Oh, sure. We put a VP shunt in. He kept coming oh. back. This kid was so cute. We'd play with him. So one time I came back, I saw his sister. I said, oh, how's Kuka doing? Oh, yeah, Kuku died last week. Oh. I thought, what the heck happened? You know, I haven't seen him. Well, he died. He got measles. I said, why don't you bring him? Well, he got measles and he got diarrhea and he died, you know? And I was like, wow. oh, man. You know, it just it just crushes you. You know, this kind of stuff can really break you. Well, especially when it's preventable and the vaccines aren't right. There. Exactly. So I this mean, kid went through all these these hurdles with his with his hydrocephalus and the problems. And he's 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 killed by measles. Gee, you know. Right. Well, that that makes me wonder where do you get your normal supplies? We have to get stuff from Nairobi. It's got to come. It, it, logistics is a, is is a nightmare. We got to buy stuff in Nairobi, or it's going to be shipped to Nairobi. Then we got to find a way to get it up through Kenya. For a while, we were, we were selling things by air from Kenya into a refugee camp in South Sudan because our place was off limits. All the Nuba Mountains region was off limits. It was a war zone. They would go out of Nuba into South Sudan as a refugee camp and pick up the supplies and bring them back to uh, Tuaria and Nuba. Wow. So logistically, it's, it's really difficult. So if you run out of something, uh, it can be months and months and months before you get that resupplied. So one substantive topic I'd like to cover and then wrap it up so we can fit this into one show of 52 minutes. I feel minutes. like we, we could keep going. Oh, this we, we could. Stuff. So what I'd like to know is you just touched on something, the difference in the disease problems there and here we don't understand. What are the other different diseases? I mean, how is the, you know, what patients are seeing there 
for different than what is in the United States that people go to see a doctor for? Right. So, I mean, of course, the, the tropical disease, like malaria, is, is the common one that always comes up. The pneumonias are the same as here, but you have a lot of malaria, a lot of TB. TB is, is like, I don't know, it's like a common cold here. I mean, you know, I've had TB, no so everybody... No, there's BCG, which, yeah. eh, you know, it's, it's, it's terrible. But a lot of TB, we have a lot of leprosy, which is something you don't see here, obviously. Um, leishmaniasis, we see yes. occasional cases. Uh, schizosomiasis, especially schizosoma hematobia in the bladder yes. uh, form, is very common. Uh, the menstruating males, remember from, from medical school <laughs> lecture, menstruating, <laughs> menstruating males in Egypt, I remember that from medical school days. <laughs> and as they show up, the guy's, you know, passing blood in his urine, and he's 11 years old, and he's just playing in the water, you know. We don't have any standing water, but it rains, pool of water fills up, the snails go in that water, kids pass urine. Yes. You know, snails are intermediate host. Wow. Uh, so it's just it was very common, and then you know bladder uh, bladder neck stricture from that down the road, as older people we get a lot of bladder neck strictures I think from old uh, untreated schisto and then bladder cancer as you get older, tons of hepatitis B, tons and tons and tons of hepatitis B, our uh, rate is about twenty percent in the general Jeez. population. So because of that, a lot of cirrhosis, uh, cirrhosis at young ages. I mean, obviously cirrhosis is not uncommon in the U.S., especially in the VA hospitals, yes. um, and lots of liver cancer. Lots and lots of liver cancer. Why is that? From hepatitis B. From hepatitis B. Yeah, so they're almost all hep B positive. And how, those are, how are most of them transmitted? Uh, through vertical. probably maternal child. Yeah. Yeah, vertical transmission. Yeah. And then, you know, probably sexual contact, ones that are hepatitis B negative. Uh, but the, a lot of mothers are hep B positive. So they're screening all the mothers now for hep B and trying to vaccinate those kids immediately after birth. We have to convince the mothers to deliver in the hospital and then to vaccinate the kids. We have a lot of people here wonder why in the world do we need to do a vaccine so quickly after birth? And then stories like that. Oh, man, I'm why. telling you, if you can, these things, I mean, you don't want these things in your population. If you can vaccinate against some of these things, I mean, HEPI is, is terrible. I mean, we have kids, we have a kid now who's, how old is he? 16, 15 with, with cirrhosis and ascites so, from HEPI. Is. Man. At 15, <coughs> cirrhosis yeah. is usually something 15, 60-year-old alcoholics yeah. get in the United States. Yeah. Well, then it's a limited prognosis as well. Right. You yeah, know, very like limited. That kid's not going to live to be an old no. man. Without a liver transplant, right. which I'm sure you don't do. No, not yet. You don't do those. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like that spirit. Yeah. So <laughs> if people want to learn more, there's... What, the movie The Heart of Nuba? How can yes. they access that? So Heart of Nuba, uh, good, my good friend Ken Carlson's a filmmaker. He came out to Nuba and, and made the film. So that's on You were Hulu. in high school with him or college? <coughs> college. We were college teammates. It's on Hulu. I think it's on Amazon. Oh, I very think, good. I Amazon on, Prime I th TV? I think so. Or Amazon something. I know it's on Hulu. Yeah, you can get it through that. I'm going to be watching it with my kids when I get home. I can tell you that. Yeah. And then if it was easy for me, I just had to show up. So it was, I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> oh, you were living your life. Yeah. So Incredible. if people want to contribute, I mean, what are the biggest needs for those people? How to, how to say this without sounding crass, but what, one thing people always want to do is they want to send stuff to us. And that's almost impossible. Logistics is impossible to get stuff to us. We're really, really remote. It's very difficult to send things. You can send cash. You can wire transfer cash or send a check two organizations that support us, and that is far and away the best way to send us. With that, we buy what we need. Very good. So we can pay staff, we can buy drugs, we can buy fuel. So like fuel. Catholic Medical Mission Board? So we have a few organizations. There's African Mission Healthcare. African Mission Healthcare. Which uh, is a, are one of our big supporters. There's Catholic Medical Mission Board. Yes. The Sudan Relief Fund. These are three big uh, partners. And so the money <clears throat> and the supplies will get to you through these three organizations. Right. So if they're, you know, if they're on your radar, if you send them a check, you say, this is for Dr. Tom Katina, Mother Mercy Hospital, it'll, it'll get to us. Another question I have is a lot of people listening to this, especially the kind of people at this conference, would want to go out and do rotations with you. Is that more harm than help if nurses, medical students, physicians want to go spend time? Right. Yeah, I, I, I'm a bit of a split mind. I love having people come out. It's, it's a pain to get out there. Logistically, logistically, it's very difficult, and that usually prevents people from coming because it can take you a week to reach us. And my thinking on it is, is this. If you want to come short-term, come with the attitude that you're not really coming so much to help, especially if it's, your, if it's your first time. Yes. You probably can't help us that much. So don't worry about it. Don't come thinking you have to help. Just come to learn. See what, the, what it's like. And then keep an open mind about coming back because maybe the second or third time you come back, you really can pitch in quite a bit that time. Or... 
let it let it fire you up and say, okay, there's something I want to do longer term, you yes. know? And if not with us, maybe with somebody else. I was given that chance as a medical student and then with CMB later, and that got me going. So I'd like to make that available to people, but don't worry about coming to be a huge help because you probably, especially if you're a student or early resident, you probably can't help that much. But don't, that's not a problem. Don't, don't worry about that. And what, what kind of advice would you give to people who have a call to the missions? I'm, I'm thinking of a friend of mine. That's his long-term goal. Right. He's working in the States here. What kind of advice would you give to them? I would say go for it. I would say we need more people to, to make that leap. I think the problem is people are held back by fear. They don't make that leap. And I didn't have a chance to say it today, but we are Roman, the Roman Catholic Church. We've been doing this stuff for a couple thousand years. <laughs> and we should be the special forces. You know, yeah. we should be the people leading the charge. And, you know, for me to come out and, and take this few months, I'm actually, by the way, I'm with the Aurora Humanitarian Initiative out. So Aurora is a humanitarian organization. It's not a Catholic organization, but it's a humanitarian group. And I wanted to go with Aurora to try to jumpstart some of this stuff. Well, and, you got you won a, a $1 million <laughs> prize on May 31st of 2017 from them. Right, right. So they, they that money gets distributed to actually some of the CMB, African Mission Healthcare yes. organizations. But I, I just want to encourage people, make that leap. You know, uh, we should be the ones leading the charge. Just, just do it. And uh, there are organizations that can help. There's Catholic Medical Mission Board. There's Mission uh, Mission Doctors Association. So there are groups out there. We talked to some other people today about trying to get some kind of a clearinghouse or a, a, even a message board that people can access. But there are people out there that w- that want long-term missionaries. There are plenty of them. And there are groups. A lot more. The Protestant side is much better organized. Yes, they are. And uh, you know, if you want to go with, with one of them, um, Samaritan's Purse has a group. Um, they they do take Roman Catholics now. They weren't. Uh, I think they weren't uh, before, but they do, and they're they're pretty well organized. And uh, just go with a very open mind. Go with a, a spirit of learning, and just kind of be. Uh, humility is is the greatest of virtues. I think <laughs> if you can kind of really co-opt that, and just go with a very open mind to learn. And then with time, once you get more and more knowledge, you really can be a, a force to teach other people. And go with the idea of. Passing it on, you know, approving, go with the idea, okay, if I go long-term, my goal <coughs> is to go and learn. And whatever abilities I have, let me pass it on to, to the guys, the people that are there. So figure that, you'll figure it out what it is when you're there. Dr. Tom Katina, thank you so much for taking yeah. some of your limited time to spend it with us and our listeners. Yeah, this has been fun. What a tremendous story. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of BWTN, so I'm happy to do this. God bless yeah, you. Uh, God bless you too. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the trivia question. Yes. So if one in 26 children dies worldwide before the age of five, how many in South Sudan and Sudan? Well, he is, Dr. Katina is in Sudan, but it's really an area that politically would fit better with South Sudan. But that's a whole nother question. In Sudan, one in 16 children or 6% die before the age of five. But in South Sudan, which recently seceded from Sudan, one in five or 20 percent. That's that is crazy. And that's kind of a marker of the the type of patients out there. These are folks with not a lot of medical care and five times as many kids die at that young age. That's terrible. It's it's awful. And in fact, you remember, um, you know, Tom Katina talking about. Uh, the measles outbreak that led to a number of deaths just in his own hospital because of those three years when the kids were prevented by the government from getting vaccinations. It's, it is crazy how many things we take for granted here that people literally, I mean, they, they die for, you know. <laughs> yes, they do. I mean, South Sudan, um, you know, almost half of their children under five are moderate to severely underweight uh, and only one in six children in South Sudan are even fully immunized, which we take for granted in this country to such a point now that many people are not even getting immunized. Right. It's it's looking more like an optional thing here where people over there, they, it's prevented from them. Right. Because they've seen, they have in their own memories what happens uh, if they don't don't get immunized. Uh, you know, other problems in, in South Sudan, you know, less than half of people have uh, healthy drinking water. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, Flint, Michigan was in the news because of their drinking water problems. But what if half the country couldn't get safe drinking water? Right. And that's that's just lead. I mean, lead is bad. Don't get me wrong. 
But have, having drinking water that's not, not sanitized from infectious causes, that leads to a lot of these deaths, I think. Uh, and then, you know, we don't have to worry about their malaria, diarrhea, uh, guinea worm disease, for which they <laughs> account for 80% of the global caseload, and a lot of tuberculosis. Uh, we are very fortunate to have the health care that we have. Now, uh, I asked for, you know, the mortality rate for children under five. So what would you guess it is in the United States? It's, it's one in five there. Well, the lowest mortality rate for children below five is not in the U.S. The U.S.'s mortality rate, which is uh, in uh, children per thousand, so it's just under 1%, is 6.9 per thousand. But there are six countries that have a mortality rate before age five of two. Slovenia, Cyprus, Finland, Iceland, Luxembourg, and little San Marino. And the highest in the world, Somalia, 122 per thousand. I'm wondering if little San Marino and Luxembourg even have big hospitals where they ship them out. (laughs) That's my question. People always talk about infant mortality in America, but we do care for a lot of very small 25-weekers and stuff. So We do. you got to take well, it with a grain of salt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the CMA, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. Where we will be discussing what it's like to be a woman physician with a panel of four Catholic women physicians who are actually all mothers as well. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.